I'm going to be honest, I almost made the title Mo Money, Mo Problems, but I didn't do that. I thought what money can't buy is a little better. Um, but what money can't actually buy. And this is so important. It's so important for us not to miss, miss the heart of this. Again, I'm, I'm amazed by the story of the rich young ruler. I'm amazed by Jesus' response and his teaching that comes immediately after. So as I mentioned before in Mark, we've looked more at Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And now we've been entering into more of the teachings of Jesus. And so Jesus is going to give us a teaching about wealth and money and idolatry. So let's just read the text. It's in Mark chapter 10. We'll start actually in verse 17, but I, I do want to back up. Mark 10 verse 17 is where we're at. But if you would, just read verse 15 with me, and then we'll go to verse 17. Mark chapter 10 verse 15. Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Verse 17. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud your honor, your mother. And he answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. (laughs) Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. (laughs) And said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter, who I love, he began to say to Jesus, see, we have left all and followed you. Just looking for that affirmation. Jesus answered and said, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers, sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All right, let's just pray over this text and we'll look at it more in depth. Father, again, um, we want to come to you, God, and be honest with ourselves this morning, knowing that, myself included, God, just money can be such an idol, the pursuit of it, the desire for it. Jesus, I, I do ask that we'd find our sense of safety and security and satisfaction ultimately in you. That, Jesus, whatever it is you might ask of us to give up, whatever it is you might say, surrender this to me and for me, Jesus, that we would be willing. God, I know at the end of the day for myself and everyone here, God, what profit if we gain the whole world but lose our soul? Jesus, we just want to hear from you. So speak to us. Move in this place. Let it not just be something we hear or agree with. Let us submit to it, God. Let us give ourselves over to what it is you're asking of us to follow you. So we just ask this, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. So the rich, young ruler. 
this story, this conversation, this account is in three of the four Gospels. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're going to kind of do that today and, and put the, the story together. In all three of the Gospels, it says he was very rich. He had great possessions. In Matthew, it says that he was young. And in Luke, we're told that he was a ruler. So a rich, young ruler. Now, not too shabby, right? I mean, this guy is a guy that we, in our culture today, like, we look up to people like this. We, we like people like this. We like people who go, man, they're young, they have health, they have energy, they're rich, and they have power, they're a ruler. I mean, think about our culture. Think about how much money today we spend on trying to stay young. We spend a lot of money trying to look young, stay young, for you parents maybe to talk young, like talk to, young to your kids, like, yo, what up, dog? What's the word? And they're like, don't do that again. Like, we, we, try, we like youth. We value youth. We care about youth a lot. We like money. We like wealth. People work really hard just to get a lot of it before they die. We like power. We like having power and authority and being able to tell what the people to do. We're told that he's a ruler, he's young, and he's wealthy. Now, this is a guy that we would say, man, this guy has all the answers. This guy has all the answers to, every, to everything everyone is asking. Like, we'd read his blog, we'd look up to him. This is the guy that has all the answers. And this is something, we, again, we look up to. But here's the thing. He doesn't have all the answers. He comes with the questions. Because even though he has all of that, he, he knows something's still missing. We would say, why are you going to Jesus, a homeless guy who walks around, and you have all this wealth, money, influence, and you're going to him? And he goes, yeah, I still have some questions. And so he goes to Jesus with these deep questions. We think he has the answers, but he really has some deep questions. Now, for us today, uh, what I want to do, because I like to do this sometimes with stories, is put a face to this guy to imagine what he's like, to imagine what he looked like. So today, in 2018, what would this be like? So for, for us today, who is this guy? What would this be like? He's a rich, young ruler. In my mind, I, I view, like, I imagine, like, a Mark Zuckerberg type of guy, right? So Mark, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg is 34 years old. That's crazy young. 34 years old. He's worth $70 billion, so he's kind of wealthy. Uh, and he's the CEO of Facebook, right? So he's a rich, young ruler. Bonus point, Mark Zuckerberg is Jewish, so it just fits really well, right? So here's this, and imagine this. Imagine this rich, young ruler. Imagine a Mark Zuckerberg. And goes, Jesus, I've heard a lot about you. Actually, you have a lot of followers. You have more followers than me. Um, I have so many questions for you. Because you seem to be satisfied. You, you don't have much. I have much, but I have some questions for you. So here's three points today I just want to point out as we, as we look at this text. Because for this rich young ruler, again, for him, his issue was idolatry. His issue, his issue was putting something in the place of God. And we're going to see that Jesus talks about a personal cost but great gain. A personal cost but eternal gain. And please hear that. That there is a personal cost to following Jesus but an eternal gain. And so there's three things under that, personal cost, eternal gain. There's three ways we're going to kind of look at this text and break up this text. Uh, number one is this, if you're taking note, it's easier than you think. It's easier than you think. Number two, it's harder than you think. And number three, uh, it's, it's better than you think. So as we look at this text and what Jesus says to do and to follow him, it's easier than you think. At the same time, Jesus makes it really clear it's harder than you think. And then he ends with it's better than you think. All right, so that's how, kind of how we're going to look at this text and break up this text. So let's look at the first one, number one. It's easier than you think. Would you read again verse 17 with me, verse 17? Uh, it says, verse 17, uh, Now he's, as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Notice this. I want you to see this. He comes running to Jesus. He kneels before him. We need to imagine this Mark Zuckerberg type of guy, incredibly wealthy, $10,000 business suit, gets out of his limo in a sense, runs to Jesus, and he falls on his knees. And you have to see the sense of desperation here. I mean, there is a sense of urgency here. Like, this is not like he casually walks up to Jesus and says, I have a pretty deep philosophical question. 
if you don't see this in the text, running and kneeling before him, like there's this urgency within him to Jesus. Like, Jesus, I have this question that's haunting me. And I want you to see this. This is the first thought today. There's no time to waste. I really do appreciate this guy. I really do appreciate how he comes running to Jesus and kneels down. I think sometimes I can give him or we can give this guy a bad rap for how he responds. But at the same time, he had this deep sense of urgency and need. And I love this. I wish we'd all have this deep sense of urgency and need when it comes to things of God or eternal life or those kind of deep questions. He runs to him and falls on his knees. And wouldn't it be great, by the way, like, wouldn't this be great if this is how people, like, approached us in evangelism? Like, wouldn't it be great if people saw something so in us, they came running, like, I need the answers to life. Like, I love it. It's just so easy. He runs to him and falls on his knees. And again, there's this deep urgency. And I want you to imagine this wealthy guy is falling on his knees before a, probably, like, a homeless-looking dude. And he's having these questions for him. And there's passion. And there's this urgency. And I really, again, I just think that we, as a, for some reason in life, we kind of just coast. And there are certain times in life we kind of wake up and we can become urgent about the gospel and go, I really need to know these questions now. I really need to, I need to know the answer to these questions. And I don't know what happened in his life to make him wake up. I don't know why he's asking this. You know, the one sad thing to me about this story is this is the only guy that comes running to Jesus, falls on his knees, and ends up leaving worse than when he started. Because he didn't listen to Jesus' answer. He had a question, but he didn't like the answer. Is that not us? How many of us have had questions, but we don't like the answer? <laughs> he has questions for Jesus, and he's like, oh, but that's the answer I wasn't looking for. And he walks away sorrowful. So I'll keep reading. So he runs to Jesus. What is his question? He says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, there's so much jam-packed in this question. I almost don't even know where to begin. But think about this. This is a wonderful question. He's a rich, young ruler. Most people don't ask this question at all in their life. Like, not a lot of people even ask this question or care about this question. Not a lot of young people ask this question. We think we have time. We think we can put this off. We think, you know, not a lot of people ask this question. So he's asking, actually, a pretty decent question. He's asking a question I wish more people would ask themselves. Like, that is a good thing. And here's the goal. He goes, I want eternal life. That is the goal. The goal is, how can I have eternal life? How can I, how can I, and it's not just live forever. Eternal life in the Bible, it never really speaks into the quantity of life, but the quality of life. We've got to get that. When you hear the Bible talk about eternal life, like we think forever, it's much more than that. It's more about the quality of life. Jesus didn't just come so we live forever, but the state we live forever in would be extremely good quality, right? So for example, example, if you go to Mexico for like vacation, I have no idea, something happens, you get in trouble, they lock you up for some reason in prison, like you're locked up for life in a Mexican prison, and this new drug comes out from these scientists, and like if you, drink, if you take this pill, you will live forever, are you going to take that pill that will cause you to live forever in a Mexican prison because you're there for life? You're sentenced for life. You're not going to take it. See, it's not about the, the side that you're living forever. It's not about living forever. It's about the state of the quality of that life. That's what he's looking for. Because again, he has a quality life though. Can we point that out? He has a decent life. He has a good life, but there's still something missing. And he goes, how can I have this quality of life, this eternal life? And he says, good teacher, what shall I do? What shall I do? Do you hear the bird, like, do, you, do you hear the religious question behind this? Jesus, what are those things that you can give me to do that if I just do this list of things, then I can be saved and be good and, and live forever? What are those things I can do? This is a very religious question. He thinks the burden of salvation is on him. That is his first mistake. He thinks the burden of salvation is on him. What shall I do? Tell me those things. Give me that list. Because we like this. We like to know that I can tackle lists. I can get this done. I can feel pretty good about myself. I can feel pretty self-righteous about myself. What shall I do? He thought it was something he did. And he says that I may inherit eternal life. Now, the reason why I had us read verse 15, and I circled that word like inherit, 
Because Jesus just, and this is really interesting, he talks about marriage, divorce, and talks about children, and he says, listen, whoever comes to me as a child, he must receive the kingdom, receive the kingdom. Look at verse 15, he must receive the kingdom. The kingdom is not something you inherit. It's not something you work for. It's just something you receive. He said, come to me as a child. Now, it's funny, Mark does this. I think he points out the irony. He's like, you've got to receive the kingdom. And here's a guy who comes to Jesus, not with his hands empty, but with his hands full. He doesn't come to Jesus with, my hands are empty. How can I receive the kingdom? He comes, with all, he comes going, I've done all these things. What can I do? And he comes with his hands full. And please hear that. Please see that. The kingdom of God is not something you work for. The kingdom of God is something you receive as a child. This guy comes not as a child. Jesus will call his disciples in just a little bit children. How hard is it for those who have rich? Jesus is looking at the disciples as children. Here's a guy who, who sees himself as an expert. What must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, before Jesus answers this question, look at verse 18. What does he say in verse 18? Jesus says, uh, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. This is an interesting response. Jesus is like, before I answer your question, why do you call me? Why do you say good teacher? Why do you do that? Why do you call me good? Do you know what you're saying? Now, here's what, here's what this is. So, people might read this and go, oh, Jesus is not claiming to be God. He, he's questioning, why do you call me God? Actually, he's doing the opposite. He's saying, hey, I hope you know what you're saying. I hope you know how you're dressing me. No one is good but God. Jesus doesn't deny this. He doesn't deny that he's the good teacher. He's saying, do you know what you're saying? See, in this day, it would be understood, this title of good was reserved for God and God alone. The title of good was re- reserved for God. So, either this guy is coming to Jesus and he understands what he's saying. He's saying, good teacher. Either he understands he is God, and that's why he's running to him, and that's why he goes this question to Jesus, or he's just trying to flatter him in some way. Jesus goes, don't do that. Don't just elevate me to good unless you understand who I am. There's no one good. There's not this spectrum of good and bad. There's good and bad. And he goes, there's only one who's good, and that's God. And Jesus is bringing him his attention, saying, do you really know who you're addressing? Do you really know who you're talking to right now? There's no one good but God. And again, there's some people who want to put Jesus in the same level as Gandhi or Mother Teresa or George Washington. Like we want to put Jesus as a good leader, a good teacher, some sort of good figure. But Jesus goes, don't do that. I'm much more than a good man. I am the God man. Do you understand who you're talking to? The big idea is we've got to understand who we're talking to, who we're approaching. And he's coming and saying, why do you call me good? And then Jesus gets to his question. And this is so interesting to me. The way Jesus answers this, I honestly believe, not that he's setting him up, but he's trying to paint a picture for him. So Jesus says, you know the commandments. Look at it again, verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus answers with the commandments. Question, does Jesus give all 10 commandments? No. He only gives kind of the latter half, the latter set of commandments. Here's what's interesting. If you want to do a study on the Ten Commandments, there are commandments that deal with man's relationship to God, and then there are commandments that deal with man's relationship to man. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's only bringing up the commandments that deal with man's relationship to man. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. He's bringing, and this guy goes, I've done that. I've kept that half. Yes, like I've done this really well. I've kept those commandments, but Jesus does not start off with the first commandment, which is what? In Exodus 23, the first commandment we do see is Jesus saying, you shall have no other gods before me. If Jesus started off with that commandment, he would have failed right away. But Jesus starts off with the second half of commandments. And and again, I think this guy's answer is pretty honest. Look at verse 20. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Like I've done that. And I think he's being sincere. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, no, you haven't. He only brings up the second set. But it's interesting, he goes, I've done all these things from my youth, and I love Jesus' response. This is, my, this is the only time in Mark's gospel we're told that Jesus loves someone, and it's this man, and it says, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
Like, I love that. Like, oh, you're so sweet. You really believe that, don't you? <laughs> like, like, oh, you really do believe you kept all the commandments from your youth. That's so great. And Jesus is now responding. And here's, here's what I think Jesus was doing. Jesus was trying to quote to him the commandments, and I really do believe to say, oh my gosh, no, no, I, I, I have stolen at some point, or I have lied, or, or I have, you know, not honored, <laughs> I've honored my father and mother always, what a great kid, like, like hopefully the law was to go, oh my gosh, I, I haven't done those things, I haven't kept those things. The point of the law, according to Galatians, is a teacher to point us to Christ. The point of the law is to say, look at all these rules, you can't keep them. You need to keep these rules to be right with God, you can never keep them. So what is the point of the law? To say you need someone who can keep them for you. You need someone who can keep them on your behalf. You, this, this should have caused some sort of humility in this guy, like, wow, no, I haven't done those things. But instead, you kind of see that arrogance, like, yeah, I've done all these things. Maybe he's sincere. Maybe it's, it's just extreme arrogance. Either way, he's blind. Whether he's sincere or arrogant, he's blind to it. Because no, see, here's the thing. When people think, no, no like, I'm a pretty good person, uh, and I can get to God, like, they, when they have that mindset, the mindset really is they don't understand sin or the holiness of God. They don't understand that you could be the best person in the world but still be an idolater. This guy's the best person. Like, you look at him, Jesus doesn't question it. Really good guy. Has a lot of money, wealth, pretty moral. And still he's an idolater. And still he misses it at some point. And there's still some sort of gap. And here's what I want to point out. In Matthew's version of the story, he goes, Jesus, I kept all these things for my youth. And then he asks this question, what do I still lack? So he, he knows I still lack something. Like, he knows that can't, it can't be that. It can't just be me loving my, like, it has to be more than that. But I've kept all these things from my youth, but what am I still missing? And he knew, and I think every man and woman, I think every adult knows that in the heart of hearts, there's still something lacking. There's still something missing. Even if I'm a pretty good person, there's still something missing in life. And he still saw that lack in himself. because what do I still lack? What am I missing, Jesus? And Jesus' response to him, I think, is probably a misused verse or maybe misunderstood verse or an applied verse to everyone, but let's look at it. It's verse 22 or verse 21. Then Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, you still lack one thing. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. <sighs> Jesus' response is specifically to him, and, and it's perfect. Now, here's the thing. People read that verse and say, now, you need to sell everything. If you want to be a true follower of Jesus, sell everything you have. And this has been abused, I think. But here's, here's what I want to point out. Jesus knows what this guy's master passion is. And he puts his finger on it and says, this is your master passion. Give up your master passion. Let me be your master passion. Get rid of the stuff that is ruling your life and owning your life and come follow me. And he basically puts, again, he, he nails it on the head. He goes, your, your master passion is not me. It's not God. Remove that. Now, I do want to say this for all of us because this is just so clear. Um, we all need to follow Jesus, but we all have different things to let go of. So let's be really clear. I have no idea what Jesus would say to you. I've had to search my heart this week and go, Jesus, what would you say to me? Like, what would you say? If, let go of this. Let go of your desire to be in control. Let go of your desire for whatever. Like, let go of this and follow me. Like, what is that thing? See, Jesus knows for this guy it's money. For you, what is it? Is it power? Is it authority? Is it a relationship? Like, what is the thing that is your master passion in life? And I want to point this out. Jesus doesn't just say, get rid of it. He says, remove it and replace it with me. Remove and replace it with me. Follow me. I'm the greater thing. If I am the true master passion, I am the one that will really fulfill you. And please hear this for all of us, all of us. When it comes to following Jesus, there are things we need to remove and we need to replace ultimately with him. Remove and replace. You see, here's what we see so often. If you've dealt with people who have addictive behaviors or personalities, a lot of times they go, okay, I'm going to stop doing this thing, but then we replace it with something else. 
I'm going to stop giving myself to this extreme theme. I'll, I'll make it less, and I'll make it less, I'll make it less. And they're just removing and replacing with some other idol. They're just removing and replacing with something else. He's saying, remove it and replace it with me. Remove it completely. It's too strong. It's too strong for you to remove it and replace it with me. Remember Zacchaeus, by the way, when Zacchaeus gets saved, and he actually, Jesus tells him to give away half, if he wants to give away half of his, it's not about a percentage necessarily, but this is what owned his heart. Like, this is the thing that ruled and mastered his heart. And for you and I, what is that thing? Like, we got to slow down and say, what would Jesus say to us? I mean, if Jesus were walking right now, physically, literally on earth, 2018, down by the Broward Library, and you're like, Jesus, I have questions for you. And he's like, you need to get rid of this and follow me. What would that be? What would that look like? What would he ask? He's like, remove this and replace it with me. Replace it with something greater. Replace it with something that will fulfill you in a deeper way. But what does it say in verse 22? But he was sad and he walked away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Look at that response. He was sad. He was sorrowful. Luke's version says the same thing. It says he walked away, he walked away very sorrowful for he was very rich. And here's what I want to point out. For this guy, the sorrow in his heart is literally the same sorrow Jesus experienced on the cross. And here's what I want to point out. If you guys remember the story, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. As he's praying, he starts sweating drops of blood. And please listen to this, just this parallel between these two stories. Jesus is, is just going, Father, any other way, let this cup pass from me. Was Jesus fear death and dying? No. The, the most painful thing Jesus experienced on the cross was separation from the Father. He's had, he's had think about Jesus being God in the flesh having unity and community with God from the very beginning, before things were created, like having that and knowing on the cross he's going to take on the sin of the world and that love and that connection, that intimacy would be broken. Remember on the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was this break in this connection between Jesus and the Father. And so when he's praying, he's going, I don't want to experience that break. I love the Father too much to experience that break. And it says that Jesus became very sorrowful, the same word used here. You see, what the Father was to Jesus, this man's wealth was to him. This was his God. This is what he worshipped. This is what he served. He was so sorrowful. Why? Because that was his God. It was almost as if he's literally losing his God. I can't lose my God. I'll give up anything else but not my God. Jesus is like, that's exactly what you need to give up. The same sorrow Jesus felt on, before he went to the cross about losing that deep spiritual connectedness, that his spiritual center with the Father, that sorrow he felt, that's what this man felt. Because this is what his heart truly was inclined to. This was heart truly worshipped. And listen, please listen. No sin is worth missing heaven over, right? There's no addiction, no thing, no idol, no, nothing worth missing, worth, worth missing heaven over. If I could say for all of us, because you might look at me and say, Josiah, are you telling me there's things I got to give up to follow Jesus? Honestly, yes. Can I tell you, but it's actually good things you're giving up. Like, there's things you have to give up. Maybe it is a relationship. Maybe it's, well, maybe it's whatever. But you're also, you're also giving up pain and suffering and hell. There's so many things you're releasing to follow Jesus. Do you know how much more you gain in light of that? He might ask you to let go of things, and you're letting go of a lot of things we need to let go of. They'll be good. And he goes, follow me. Follow me. So here's the thing. Here's this rich young ruler, right? A rich young ruler who has it all. He still has this void. He goes to Jesus, and he's not willing to give it up. And I want us to see this, because before we move on and get to point number two, I love the thought of this story, because there's another rich young ruler in the story, right? Who's the other rich young ruler? Jesus. The other rich young ruler in the story is Jesus. Think about this. Jesus, first of all, he's rich, right? He's God. He created everything. He's the ruler. He's young. He's about 30-ish years old. Jesus is the rich young ruler who what? Who gave up everything. This guy was not willing to give up everything for God, but Jesus was willing to give up everything for him. We have another rich young ruler in the story who says, I will leave it all for you. I will actually leave way more than you could ever leave. You might leave some possessions that I created. I'm going to leave heaven 
to be in relationship with you. We have a true rich young ruler who left it all for us. And so Jesus says, hey, I left it all. I left so much more. Will you leave it all for me? I left infinitely more than you could ever leave. Will you leave it all for me? And so he asks us, and he goes away very sorrowful. And this is a teaching moment for Jesus. And that brings us to number two is this. Um, It's harder than you think. (laughs) So it's easier than you think. Why? Follow Jesus. Replace that idol with something better. But number two, it's also harder than you think. And Jesus says, here's a teachable moment. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished, like, like astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What is he saying? What, what is this? Like, what is going on here? Maybe you've heard that phrase, by the way. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man in the kingdom of God. And like, maybe you've heard it abused or, or put different ways. I, I've read things, so much things about this that people are like, yeah, the eye of the needle was this gate. And you know, so Jesus is really trying to point back to something literal. Like there was the eye, the, this eye of the needle was a gate that people would enter into to get into Jerusalem and the camels had to get really low and scooch down across. First of all, that's not real. There's nothing to prove that. There's no historical evidence for that. I don't even think camels scooch, right? Like they, all that is wrong. The, the whole thing, Jesus is actually being really funny. It's hard. You know how like humor's lost? I don't know if you've, I've had to like, you know, share the gospel and have a translator. And if I make a joke, the translator says it. No, no, no. Like nothing happens. He doesn't get it. They don't get it. I just start sweating. It's awful. There's a lot of things that don't happen in translation, Right? Jesus is saying something like for us, we'd be like, oh, I'm so hungry, I could eat my left arm. Like, oh, it's raining cats and dogs. They'd be like, ha, I get it, yeah, yeah, you're so hungry, you could eat your arm. The, Jesus is saying, the biggest animal I can think of in their era, in their area, Palestine, the biggest animal, camel, smallest hole, eye of the needle. He's like, you know how hard it is to go to heaven? Big animal, small hole. Big, so, and it's like, for them, it's like, ah, oh, it's funny, Jesus is being funny. Like, I, by the way, Jesus does use a lot of irony, wit, humor. If you've never read the Bible, like in that light, please start reading that light. Jesus is incredibly witty and smart and lighthearted. He sometimes will be lighthearted to make a powerful truth. He goes, how hard is it for this big animal to go through the small hole? It's harder, it's harder to, for a, a man to enter into heaven who's wealthy than for this animal to enter the small hole. And he's trying to be funny in a sense. So here, let me just point this out. What's going on? Because let's think about this. You know, what's interesting thought that I had to think about, this rich young ruler, if he were here today, would probably think we're crazy rich. He'd be like, yo, there's like a door, and like this little thing you sit on, and you flush, and like it goes, where does it go? And you're like, I don't know, it just goes. Like, what is it, like, you don't have to like bury it, or like put dirt on top of it? No, it's pretty great. Like, I press this button, and like water shot out. Yeah, it's a water fountain. Like, you know, we, for us today, like he would probably come here and be like, you guys are all kings, right? So like, what does this mean? Because this, this should be something for us that, that shakes all of us. This is, I don't want to downplay Jesus saying, it's hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, it's hard for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Even if you don't have it. If you just trust in it, it's hard. What is Jesus saying? What is he saying about money? What is he saying about wealth? How should we as Christians view money and wealth? What should our approach be to it? How should we view it? How should we look at it? And this is a big question, you guys. Again, when the Bible talks about 2,000 verses dealing with money or wealth or possessions or stewardship, something along those lines, God is trying to bring our attention to this. Because the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it is his, and yet for some reason we think it's ours. God's like, I created everything, I give it to you to steward, but now you've taken it like it's yours. So what do we do? Because let me just point this out again. Money in and of itself and having money is not evil. It's not wrong to have money. How many Bible characters do we see have money? Abraham was crazy wealthy. Joseph was the second wealthiest man. Solomon, David, Esther. I mean, you could go to Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. Crazy wealthy people in the Bible who followed Jesus. It's not wrong to have money. 
It's not wrong to own money. But again, how do you view money? Do you own the money? Does the money own you? What does it do to your heart? What does it do to your motives? What does it do to how you perceive people, look at people, talk to people? There are some indicators that talk to us that the Bible tells us this is how you know money really rules you rather than you rule your money. And there's some things we should pay attention to. It is not just for the wealthy. It's those who just trust in riches in general. That could be for the poor, those who trust in it. So we, we got to look at this question. It is a deep question. What does Jesus and the Bible say about money and how should we as followers of Jesus view money? If Jesus says more about money than heaven and hell and prayer and faith combined, if he says more about money, we should probably start paying attention. Jesus made it really clear. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve both. So how should we view money? All right, let's just try to look at this as best as we can. Um, First, I want to start off with this. Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. If God were to give you wealth or money or as you work hard and God increases your pay, that is not bad. If riches increase, just don't set your heart on it. Here's the problem with money. Many times money for us can become our safety and our security. We think, I have money, therefore I'm good. As long as I have money, I'm safe and secure. And what we're doing is we're finding our identity and value in our money. And we say, the money's my shepherd, I shall not lack. And we look at Psalm 23 like that. Because I have money, I'm good. Rather than the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not lack. Here's the thing. You can have money and trust in Jesus. You can. You can't have money and, and just go, this is just a tool and it's neutral. Again, money in the hands of someone who's wicked can be really destructive. Money in the hands of someone whose hands are surrendered to God can be used extremely powerful. God can do a lot of good. And here's the thing, we need Christians who have money. That's good. That's less money for Satan in his kingdom and more money for God in his kingdom. Like, that's good. It's not bad. You look at scriptures again, there are a lot of people who have money, but it can't own us. It can't rule us. We can't find our safety in it. So for example, this happens, maybe this has happened to you, it's happened to us, uh, when you get a notification, right, from Bank of America or Chase. It's like, bling, you're below $25. Like, right, or your mom. Your mom's like, hey, you're below $25. I have no idea. But you're like, oh no, right, I'm below $25. Or maybe when you have money and things are good, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to bank account. How is it full? Burritos for everyone, right? Like what we can do is we can look at money and, and find like value in it, or we can feel like we're invincible with it. And if you feel like your life is falling apart because you have no money, or if you feel invincible because you have money, maybe at that point in time, you're seeing that money is now becoming an idol. That money is starting to rule your heart. It's changing how you think. It's changing how you approach people, talk to people. And this is so dangerous because this is, tr- I don't want to downplay it. It's hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's not, that's not like, money just does something to our hearts and our lives. Again, it's neutral, but our hearts are naturally bent, right? Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all else. My heart is not really trustworthy. And so I need a heart that is surrendered to Jesus, saying, Jesus, everything is yours, and my money is yours, and what do you want to do with it? You see, another way to put it this way is money reveals what we worship. Money reveals what we worship. It really does. The way you spend your money, the way I spend my money, reveals what we worship. If we were to look at your bank or my bank, you can say, oh, wow, you really care about food. Like, yeah. Or, oh, wow, you really care about clothes. Yeah, I do. Oh, wow, you really care about cosmetics and appearance. Yes, Money reveals what we worship. Or you go, oh, wow, look at you really care about people. You really care about God. You really care about the gospel. You really care about, and money really does reveal, yeah, I really do. Can I, I was reading something this week, and it really challenged me. Um, it was talking about this idea that we, as, we love to spend money, right? As Americans, of course, we love to spend money. We actually get like this euphoric feeling when we spend money. Like, I just spent money. Like, and we have clothes, we have things in our hands, and it's new. It's never been worn. Like, there's something about money. It's fun to spend money. And let me say this. It's not bad, actually. Ecclesiastes talks about just enjoy the fruit of your labor. Like that's, that's a good thing. Like, can I tell you, you shouldn't feel guilt if you have money. You shouldn't feel guilt if you can enjoy things once in a while. Ecclesiastes says to do that. But when you're finding your sense of, again, value and purpose and meaning, yet, so here's the question that was posed. It's like, man, 
do I have just as much fun giving than I have spending? So here's the thing. We have a lot of fun spending money, like a lot of fun. It feels great. You feel great. But can I ask you, when you give, when you give to God, when you give to people, when you help people out, is it like fun? Like, oh my gosh, I get to give to the kingdom of God. I get to help plant churches. I get to help get the gospel out. This is so fun. Like, is it fun? Is it fun to help someone in need? Like, oh my gosh, I get to pay for this person's lunch today. I get to help them out. Or is our heart like, oh my gosh, I have to give to God. This is miserable. I have to help this person. Like, what is, is it fun? And I've been like praying over that. Like, you know, so for us, so for example, I've been, someone encouraged me to do this. So I started doing this years ago that for when I get an email saying, your tithe went through. When I get that email, I pray over that. I see that email. I'm like, Lord, multiply it. Lord, thank you that we can do it. Like I try to pray over it every because it can become like it's just, it's just out there. I don't see it. I'm not aware of it. But to actually go, God, thank you that we can give to the mission of God, the kingdom of God. And there's something about that that makes your heart go, God, this is, I'm a part of something much bigger than me. That at the end of my life when I die, I just have a lot of money stored up and it's gone. That I was actually able to invest in eternal things and heavenly things. Because in Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, where's your treasures? There your heart will be also. So as I invest in the things of God and the kingdom of God, guess where my heart is? In the kingdom of God. If I invest in me, my heart's in me. If I invest in what? Things, stuff, possessions, my heart is for those things. So it's like there's something about it should be fun. I know I'm not always there. I know we're not always there. But I would ask you, say, Jesus, help me make it just as fun to give than to spend. Because that really does reveal our heart posture towards the things of God. Now, let's look at what Paul says about money. Paul says a lot about money. We're not going to go about it in depth, but 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, just so you can read this, uh, Paul writes it this way. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire, desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and to many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith, though, in their greediness. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. See, money can buy a lot. Money can buy medicine, but it can't buy you health. Money can buy you a house, but it cannot give you a home. Money can buy entertainment, but it can't buy you happiness. Money can buy you the good life, but it cannot buy you eternal life. You see, Paul is trying to say, godliness with contentment is great gain. You brought nothing into this world. You take nothing out. Listen, you can't take it with you. What is he, that's what he's saying. You can't take it with you. Can we just like say that in our mind? I can't take it with me. He goes, you came in naked. You leave naked. Everything in between. Actually, that's, that's a gift from God. You came with nothing. You left with nothing. Everything between is a gift from God. Count that as a blessing. He goes, with, this, with these things you shall be content. Verse 9 is what got to me because he says, those who desire to be rich, those who desire, not just those who are rich. People, Deuteronomy actually talks about there are people of a knack for making money, and that's good. That can be a really good thing. They have a knack for making money, but again, it doesn't rule them. He says, here's the issues when it rules you, when the desire is so strong. That word, those who desire to be rich in 1 Timothy 6 9, that desire, that word actually means it's excessive focus. Desires, it connotates an idea of addiction. So maybe when it comes to addictive behaviors, you've heard of something called like the tolerance effect. So for example, if someone starts using drugs and they get this high from the drug and then they go, my body's getting used to it. I'm not getting the high effect anymore, so I need more. And they increase it or they try something different and they're getting that high effect and they increase and they're like, I'm losing that high effect, so I'm, getting to I'm tolerating it. So I want to take in more and more and more. He's actually saying this is what happens with money. It's crazy how when it comes to money, we can have this tolerance effect. You get some more money and you, know, you got 10% raise and now you're like, I actually want more than that. I thought I'd be happy with 10, but now I need 10 more. Then you get that level. 
Now I need more. Now I need more and more. And it, it, we have the same tolerance effect to it. We have the same, we get used to it, we crave it, we, like, we got that high, but I need to have a greater high. You know, and what was once luxuries to us, something that was like a luxury is now a necessity. That's when you know. Something was a luxury to me that I could, I, I was fine. I'd never had it, I live without it, but now if I don't have it. Because once I have it, I have to keep it, I have to maintain it. And he's saying that's when it's desire. That's when the desire is overtaking you and you fall into greed. And, and again, I was at the barbershop, uh, I think Friday. Um, you're like, oh, I can tell. Yeah, I got a haircut. And um, <laughs> uh, while I was sitting there, this lady I was talking to, she, her son was getting a haircut. He had this accident um, in the hospital. And so, you know, he's just, he's just in a difficult place of life. So I was just talking to her. She's like, I'm Catholic. And she's talking to me. And so she's like, you know, we do know uh, the uh, money is the root of all evil. And like, you know, there's that Christian like little lawyer and you're like, no, the love of money is a root. But I'm like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm like, that's not gonna be beneficial at all right now. So I don't need to correct them. That is wrong. But that is a common thought. That is a common thought. Money itself is the root of all, of all kinds of evil. No, the love, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So there's something about love. Think about this in the Bible. Think about people who love money so much, it ended up actually taking them from God. Think about Achan, who goes, I need to have that money. I need to take the possessions. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. Hey, we gave all this money, but they didn't. They lied. You know, think about uh, Demas in 2 Timothy 4. Paul's like, Demas was once a follower of me, once a co-worker of me, but he loved the present world more than, me, more than Jesus. You see, we've seen many times where people love money, and it says they, listen to this, listen to the definition of 1 Timothy 6.10. They pierce themselves with many sorrows. They pierce themselves with many sorrows. I want us to hear that. Paul's, I think, being ironic, saying, why are they piercing themselves with many sorrows when there was one who was already pierced for their sorrows? When there's one who already took it for them, why are they doing it to themselves? Why are they falling into that trap? It's like that word snare is like a, it's a bird trap. They're just walking around. They fall in. Why pierce themselves in that way? Why pursue that? Why fall in love with it? Again, it is so hard. Myself, because I have to repent of it this week. I go, God, there is a desire to want to be, have money. So I'm just like, there's stability. Like you don't want to live paycheck. And there's nothing wrong with, again, there's nothing wrong with having savings. There's nothing wrong with being a wise steward like Proverbs talks about. There's nothing wrong with those things like leaving inheritance to my children's children. That is not wrong. That is not wrong. But when that rules me and owns me, and I think there's so many signs when I can only give small amounts and not large amounts. When I can only think about what other people have and what I, what I don't have. I think there are signs when you go, this is now ruling my heart. And one of the greatest ways to say you don't rule me is to give it. And that's what Jesus just wanted from this guy. He said, you're ruled by your money give it so you're not ruled by it. I'm a better master. I'm a better owner. I'm, I'm, I'm someone who will treat you much better than your money will. And Jesus, it's hard. It's hard. It is hard. What is the solution then? What is the solution? Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 later on, Paul writes this, and please hear this, verse 17 in 1, 1 Timothy. Paul says, listen, please hear this, command, wow, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. If you're rich, don't be haughty. Paul says to do that. <laughs> Nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold onto eternal life. If you are wealthy, by God's grace, this is what he says. Don't be haughty, give. Give willingly. Share. Share in all good things. Lay a good foundation. You know, there's like financial classes you can take, different ones. And there's like, I remember like being a part of one where like, there's like a chant, like all things are God's. And like, all things are God's. And, and it's true. Like if we really do believe it, it's like, wow, I've made money because my hands, who gave you those hands? I made money because of my athleticism, who gave you the athleticism? I made money because my brain, who, who gave you the brain? Like we got to understand that this is, he's like, share, do, do this willingly. Don't let it own you. Now here's what I want to point out now in verse 26. Here's what's interesting. The disciples hear this and are freaked out. 
Maybe like you right now, you're like freaked out. You're like holding on your wallet. Like I'm not letting you go. Like you're freaked out. Verse 26. It says, and they were greatly astonished. <laughs> Listen to that. Saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. There was this mindset in their day that if you had money, you had God's favor. If you had money, it's because God did that for you. I think that mindset still does exist. If I have money, it's because I'm living a good life. If I don't have money, I'm living a bad life. Remember Job? That was Job's friend's like encouragement to him. Job, maybe you, you lost all of your money because you've been living a bad life, right? And that's, like, that's not the case. They had this a mindset. A lot of people adopt this still today. If I have money or I will get money as long as I'm being good. That's just not the case. But they had this. They go, then who can be saved? Because if they're wealthy and that's from God and you're saying that it's hard for them to enter, then who can be saved? I don't get this. And I love Jesus' response, right? It's not verse 27 so powerful. He goes, yeah, it is impossible. It is impossible. It's impossible for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He goes, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. And can we just point this out? It's not just impossible for wealthy people. It's impossible for poor people. It's impossible for middle-class people. It's Im- the whole idea of the kingdom of God is not something, again, we work for. It's something we receive. The kingdom of God, being born again, entering into the kingdom, is because of the, the, the divine accomplishment done through Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. Meaning, Jesus paid the price. Everyone who's going to heaven, it's a supernatural gift from God. It's impossible for anyone. It's impossible for anyone. Wealth, poor, good, bad. It's impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of God on their own works. It's impossible, but not with God. Because with God, this is a gift. With God, we know that salvation is a gift given freely. So anyone who's born again in this room, anyone who believes in Jesus, that was a supernatural thing that God did in your life. You're entering the kingdom of God because of something God did in you. It's a supernatural, it's a wonderful thing. So the disciples are freaked out. How, how can anyone enter? And he's like, right, no one, no one. But with God, it's possible. But with God, he does it. He's the one who makes, makes a dead person and makes them alive. With God, all things are possible. It's easier than you think. It's harder than you think. It's hard for a rich person, Jesus says. But can I tell you, it's better than you think. Look at verse 28, and we'll close with this. Verse 28. Then Peter began to say to Jesus, See, <laughs> see, we have left all and followed you. Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mothers or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Again, Peter, the classic guy looking for affirmation, which we all do. We all want affirmation from Jesus. Like, see Jesus? Actually, historically, we don't believe Peter or even some of the disciples were poor. Having a boat or having a fishing business probably implies they actually had some money. Still today, if you have a boat, it's like, yeah, you're doing pretty good, you have a boat. Like, but they had a boat then, right? The idea was like, we did leave all. We did leave lands. We did leave possessions for you. And Jesus is like, good. Everything you left, he goes, you'll receive a hundredfold in this life. Can I tell you, in the church, we left our family in California, and we still have our family. They're still, we love them, we lo- they love us. But can I tell you, we left a lot, and we've gained a lot. Like, you guys, our family, like, honestly, like, our family, our new mothers, new brothers, new sisters, Jesus said this, new lands. He goes, with persecutions, he doesn't shy away from the hard part. You get some new stuff, but it's also going to be hard, right? And he goes, and also a hundredfold in the age to come, eternal life. There's so much more. He goes, listen, you, you give up a little, but you gain a lot. For some reason, I think the enemy has done a great job thinking to you and I, saying to you and I, you give up a lot and you only gain a little. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you, you give up a little, but you gain infinitely more. It's so much better than you think it is. You gain so much more than you think it is. Is this not our story? Is this not Paul's story? What did Paul say about his story, a guy who left so much? In Philippians 4, listen to this verse. Philippians 4, Paul says this. But what things were gained in me, these things I have counted lost for Christ. 
Yet indeed, I also count all things, listen, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul gave up a lot to follow Christ. He gave up the Sanhedrin, he gave up his position, his authority, his wealth, and he goes, all those things are rubbish to me anyways, that I may gain Christ. I gain so much more by following him. I gain so much more by following him. You know, this phrase of the first shall be last, last first, again, here's, here's the, why is he saying that? The rich young ruler in everyone's eyes was first. Jesus is saying he's last. The disciples who left all and are living like a homeless life, they would say are last, but Jesus says, no, they're first. He's saying, it's, again, it's different. It's different than how you might first perceive or think. And I just have to end with this, though. Can I put the emphasis on something? It's not so much what we have left or will leave for Christ, but it's what Christ have, has left for us. The emphasis more, again, is on the true rich young ruler. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the reason, in a sense, you could say why we're called the exchange, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor so that you through his poverty could become rich. The exchange, that God was rich in heaven, he became poor because we were poor so that we might become rich. That this great exchange took place, that he took our place, not just rich financially, it's so much greater than that. Let's not diminish it. God's like, it's so much more. You're infinitely rich, you're spiritually rich, your inheritance is in heaven because of what I've, I've left heaven so you could gain heaven. You see, it's not so much what have we given up, but what did Jesus give up? And in light of that, guys, what we give up is nothing compared to the great gift Jesus left you and I. Amen? Listen, I'm going to say this. All of us have idols in our life. All of us have things that have taken the place of Jesus in our life. Let today be a day you surrender that. Say, Jesus, I surrender that relationship. I surrender that money idol. I surrender that career idol. Whatever that is, that is taking your place, God, and I'm surrendering that to you. I'm removing it and replacing it with you. Follow me. Follow Jesus. Listen, let today be the day of salvation for you. Let today be the day where you say, I'm no longer going to put things above God. He's going to have the rightful place in my life. He left it all for me so I could become rich. That is the gospel. The gospel is something that God did for you on your behalf. The gospel is not, hey, good news, you have a lot of things to do. <laughs> the gospel is not, good news, you get to work. The gospel is, look at all that Jesus has done for you. Look what he left for you so you could become rich. That is the gospel. That is the good news. It is greater than you think it is. It is greater than anything you give up. Jesus says, in this age and the age to come, you received hundredfold. God, listen, God will always outgive us. I can never be like, God, look what I, I gave for you. He's like, ah, trust me, I give a lot more. We can never outgive God in that way. And I would say this, what you give up today, I know you'll look down and say it was so worth following Jesus. It was so worth giving up this relationship, this idea, this thought, this career, this, this weird innate desire for something. It was so much more fulfilling to follow Jesus. I've been way more satisfied in following Jesus. I'd say do that today. What are we waiting for? If God's, if God's spirit is speaking to you saying believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus right now where you're at. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. It's as simple as you saying, Jesus, I'm done. I believe in you. I believe you left it all for me. I believe you gave it all up so I could be with you. It's the thief on the cross. Remember me when you enter into the heaven? He's like, hey, you remember now. It's as simple as calling upon him. It's because he already paid for it. He already did it. Amen? I'm going to pray. We're going to end with some worship. And don't leave yet. We're just going to have a couple last closing thoughts. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the promise of your son, Jesus, who is the greatest gift, who left it all, God, so that we might gain it all. Thank you for that. Jesus, I ask, God, for myself and everyone in this room, where wealth and money, God, is just ruling our hearts, we surrender that to you. God, that our hearts are just inclined to trying to find safety and security in things other than you. And so, Jesus, we ask that you remove that. God, for those who are wealthy, as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, that they would not be haughty, that they'd be willing to share, that they'd be willing to realize everything is a gift from you. Everything is a gift from you. God, we just give it back. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that godliness with contentment is great gain. Thank you. God, I ask that again, that money would no longer rule our hearts. It is a bad master, but that you would, Jesus. So we invite you here. Speak to us as we sing, as we worship, as we pray. We look to you in your wonderful name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.